I'd like to begin our prayer this morning uh, with two verses from Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. In the company of the upright, in the assembly, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Father, we're here to study the works of God as you led Joshua and the people of Israel into the land. And Father, that long process, all that it included in the lessons you were teaching your people. Father, may we be ardent students of your word. May we recognize that the word of God is supreme and it is what guides our lives, that all else pales into insignificance compared to the truth as it is proclaimed in your word. So, Father, we ask that your truth will reign supreme here this morning, that it will be proclaimed throughout this complex today in the service and in every class, and throughout the world today. Oh, Lord, we're living in an age when there's, there's so much falsehood and uh, uh, heretical teaching and uh, things happening which seem to deny the very tenets of the faith. We ask, Lord, that your spirit will move across this land in a mighty way, that justice might roll down from the mountains and that peace will come to the hearts of men and women across this land as they come to know you in a personal and life-transforming way. We ask that anybody here this morning in this complex who doesn't know you will be brought face to face with the truth of who you are and will be brought into your kingdom as a work of the sovereign God. Father, bless our study. Guide us according to your great will. And Father, we would include in, our cl in closing this prayer. Praised are you, Adonai, our Father, our God, King of the universe, who gives the Torah, the word of truth, and the good news of salvation to his people Israel, and to all the peoples through his Son, Yeshua, our Lord. Amen. If you turn to Joshua, the first chapter, I'd like to begin reading at the 10th verse. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are to cross this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. And to the Reubenites and to the Gadites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word which Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you, saying, The Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But you shall cross before your brothers in battle array, all your valiant warriors, and shall help them, until the Lord gives your brothers rest as he gives you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to your own land and possess that which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. And they all answered Joshua, saying, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words in all that you command him shall be put to death, only be strong 
and courageous. Moses, the great man of God, is permanently gone now. He's gone from the scene. God has taken him. The time for all people comes at one point in which God moves on to the next generation and to the successors of those that have gone on before. Many of us, of course, have wondered greatly about how could Billy Graham be replaced, but God replaced D.L. Moody. God replaced Billy Sunday. There always are those that God will raise up to stand in the gap, to carry his word forward. And so it was at this hour. Not only was Moses gone, but the command of the Lord was still ringing in Joshua's ears. And we read that in the first part of the chapter last week. And so Joshua was wasting no time to begin to fulfill the commission which he had received from the Lord. And so we read that he sent the tribal leaders throughout the Israelite camp <clears throat> with a warning to the people, or instruction, I suppose I should say, to the people, that they were to prepare themselves to march. And they were to be prepared to march within three days. The soldiers were to gather their equipment, shine it up, polish it up, oil it, whatever they needed to do, get themselves ready, get their sea rations, you know, get their packs ready, whatever all that involved. Of course, Israel was still on manna. The manna was still coming and manna was still available and will be until they actually are able to live off the land. But there was also food available from the land already in the sense of the land captured by Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh. And so what, what food is available, uh, they were to garner together and get ready for the march. They didn't need a lot, of course, because Jericho was within sight. They could see the walls there across the river on the other side. And they could see the orchards and the vineyards that surrounded that great garden city. And so... It, the, the food of the land wasn't far away. The command from Joshua, I, I don't know if you can, it can sense this, but these people have been camped for weeks at this spot, waiting in anticipation. And so when the command of, the, uh, of Joshua came to prepare to march, it must have been like a lightning bolt, electrifying everybody, you know. The day has come, the hour has come. That for which we have been Working for 40 years is about to begin. I think that many had stood for hours, sat for hours, meditated for hours on the land across the Jordan. Because in the encampment there, they could look across the Jordan and they could see the Judean highlands rising up to the west. And in those days, the Judean highlands had some trees on them. And so they must have been very attractive and looking across and knowing that is the land that God has promised us. And they were longing for it, beckoning. The, the hills were beckoning unto, unto them. And now the day of the conquest was about upon them, or at least the beginning of the conquest was, had come. And, and I think there was an excitement and energy that pulsed through the camp. I think everybody got ready with energy and with desire. I don't think it was like when they were wandering around out in the wilderness when they decided finally to break camp and move on to another site. Oh, brother, you know, here we are in this yucky site. Now we're going to move on probably to another yucky site as we pass through the desert. Now they're prepared or are preparing to go into the land. But I think this excitement was tempered a little bit. I think it was tempered a little bit by a degree of uncertainty because they had never been a warfaring people before. They had never carried out a conquest of a land before. 
I mean, they were only a generation out of slavery. And I think they were a little bit fearful. At least some of them were. And can you imagine the questions that raced through their minds? We're being told to get ready to go. Is Joshua really the man that Moses was? Will Joshua be faithful as Moses was? Is Joshua as capable as Moses was? Again, reminding you that Moses had been the only leader for this generation for 40 years. These people who were now to go into the land were the people who were 19 years of age and younger at the time of Kadesh Barnea. And many of them who are going to be soldiers in this are young people who were born in the wilderness. They had never known Egypt and they had never known any other leader but Moses. And so, is Joshua the man that Moses was? Well, some probably had some doubts. I, I think some of those who were on the older side at this time, maybe pushing 60, remembering the failure at Kadesh Barnea were thinking, will we fail this time also? Or will we succeed? Will we be obedient? Will we go in to the land? And then, of course, I think there was the question that always comes, the question that was in the Garden of Eden. Will God really slay you? Satan said to Eve, Is God really able to give you the land? Will God give you the land? Is the God of Israel greater than the gods of the Canaanites? Oh, yes. He parted the Red Sea, but that was 40 years ago. He's given us manna all these years, but, but still, the Canaanite gods are powerful. Satan would put doubts in their minds, particularly doubts as to what was really the Word of God. Is God really saying you should go into this land? Satan's, one of Satan's greatest tools for believers is to doubt the Word of God, to put doubt in your mind as to the Word of God. Is it really true? Can it really be interpreted this way or twisted that way? I think a few of them wondered if they would actually survive the conquest, the invasion. Would they actually be able to settle with their family in the land or will they die in the process? Well, I think these were just some of the questions that must have gone through the minds of uh, certain individuals, maybe many of them, as they prepared in anticipation of possession of the land and of actually launching the invasion. For over 400 years, Israel had lived in captivity in Egypt. They had not known any other land but Egypt. And for a, the bulk of that time, they had lived in slavery. They had never been an independent people before they exited Egypt during that period of 300 years or so that they had been in slavery. I mean, 300 years. I mean, think about it for a little bit. Um, backtrack 300 years from right now. This is 1998, 1698. I mean, 1698, this wasn't even, a, I mean, we were not even a United Nation. Who lived in California? Well, the California Indians lived here. There was no United States. Uh, we were three quarters of a century away from independence yet at that time. So to think about how long they were in that land and how long they were in slavery within that total framework of time that they were within the land, uh, that was an awful lot of uh, time to, to create a mentality that was not an independent mentality. I mean, all we have to do is look at what happened when slavery was outlawed in the United States back in eight, nine, 1863 and after the Civil War. Many, many, many 
of those who had been slaves. It took a long time. It took another generation, even another generation after that, to begin to adopt an idea of what it meant to live in freedom. And even then, it has taken really a hundred years for many who come from that heritage to really catch a concept of the fact that this nation is theirs too and that they have a role to play in it. Now, of course, part of that was the uh, oppression that was put upon the freed slaves. But nevertheless, it took a long time for that slave mentality to, to begin to work out. And so it would for Israel too. And that was, of course, partly by the killing off of one generation uh, in the wilderness. And then for the past 40 years, what had they been? Had they been a settled people? Had they been building great cities and, and building an empire so they could move out? No, they were nomads in the desert. They lived in tents and moved from spot to spot, herding sheep. Now they're on the verge of actually gaining a, a possession, a homeland that was, is their own. A land which they can call home. I mean, we've lived at a time in history, and if you've read anything about the occupation of Israel, the, the country of Israel today, over the past 40, well, 50 years, this is the 50th anniversary, as you know, of the Declaration of the State of Israel. And if you've ever read anything about Zionism and the whole concept behind Zionism, which goes clear back to the late uh, 19th century, you, you know what the feeling was like for these people, particularly as characters like Hitler arose and created a sense where the Jews didn't belong. What, what desire was there for a homeland? And how tenaciously they have held on these past 50 years. Because people will do almost anything to have some place to call home, to know they belong somewhere, to have a flag that is theirs, that they can pay allegiance to. And here we have two and a half million people who are prepared to finally have a homeland, a place where they can live and where they can serve their God without having to bow to some other people or some foreign God. The question becomes, I mean, God had promised this homeland over 500 years before. The question is, why did it take God so long to fulfill his promise to Abraham? You know, many probably thought God had forgotten them. And I'm, I'm sure many of the descendants of Abraham who were living in Egypt had forgotten God. But you could just sense how these people might have felt. The promise was made so long ago. You know? I mean, again, put it in our context. That would be like going back to the days of Christopher Columbus. And so we, we probably cannot come up with the whole answer to that question, but I think we can certainly know part of the answer. First of all, when God gave that promise to Abraham, Abraham would become the father to one son, Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, and the wife, Sarah. Three people. That was the people of God. <laughs> that was the nation of Israel. Wouldn't be the nation of Israel, of course, because Israel ain't even been born yet. But the nation that God would create. And during that 500 years, those three people multiplied to two and a half million. Enough to adequately occupy the land, to secure it, to live all the way from Dan to Beersheba. And from the Mediterranean clear over to the highlands of Transjordan. Secondly, for whatever reason, it took 400 years to prepare the people to build a nation that would stand at the base of Mount Sinai, and when God proclaimed his word, they would say, 
we will do it. Yes, Abraham said he would do it. He followed God. But we know that Jacob was a supplanter. And we know that some of his sons were something less than ideal. And we studied them. Reuben, unstable as water. And Judah, who goes off and, and, and has a child by his daughter-in-law. It took those years to prepare Israel to meet God at Mount Sinai and to become the people of God. And then I think thirdly, and most specifically stated in Scripture, God gave the Amorites, the Canaanites, the people who lived in Canaan, 400 additional years, 400 years of the long-suffering of God before His judgment fell on these people. Let me remind us of that by reading back in the 15th chapter of Genesis, beginning at verse 13. Genesis 15, 13. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried a good old, at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God, of course, knew that the Amorites who lived in the land would not turn to him and one day would need to be judged. You know, who are we to question God as to why, if he knows this is going to be the case, why does he let it go on? I mean, that question could be asked why God ever created the world in the first place, you know, knowing what was going to happen. But God, in His faithfulness and in His justice, gave to these Canaanites, these Hivites, these Hittites, these Girgashites, and all the other ites that, that lived and are under the general title Canaanite, He gave them all opportunity to turn to Him. And, of course, they would not and, uh, of course, there would be one, and we'll be reading about her uh, very soon here. And is 400 years worth one? Worth one and her family? Yeah. God goes to great lengths to save even a few. So great are the lengths that he has gone to that we'd even become a man himself and die, that we might know him. So as Israel prepared to launch this invasion, we read in this passage already this morning that Joshua reminded the men of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh that they had made a promise to God several months prior to this. And let's refresh our minds on that promise also from Numbers chapter 32, verse 25. And the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben spoke to Moses, saying, your, your servants will do just as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our livestock, and all our cattle shall remain there in the cities of Gilead, while your servants, everyone who is armed for war, will cross over in the presence of the Lord to battle, just as my Lord says. They had asked for the land of Gilead. And Moses had said to them, What? You're, you're going to weaken the resolve of this whole nation by 
pulling two and a half tribes out and, and making only nine and a half tribes responsible for the conquest of the land. And Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh says, no, 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 Moses, you don't, you don't understand. We don't, we're not shirking our duty. We're not saying we won't go in and fight for the land too, but we just would like to settle over here on this side and install our families here and our livestock here. And then we can go forth into battle with greater abandon because our homes are secure and our wives are secure and our children are secure. And, and we will, in fact, go at, front of the, at the front of the army and we will lead the way and we will stay as long as we are needed. And then we will return. And this is the promise they made. And Joshua is not about to forget that promise because he wants all the men he can get. And so he says to these men, are you going to fulfill this promise that you have made before God? Because, you see, they had been allowed to settle east of the Jordan River on that one condition that they would join the other tribes in the conquest west of the Jordan. They wouldn't stand there and say, well, we have our land, so now it's your guys' turn to go get yours. No, they couldn't do that. Or else God would not bless them and they could not have that land. And so now is the hour in which the promise made has to become the promise delivered. The security of their land and of their families in Gilead depended upon their obedience to the command of the Lord through Moses. They had to stay in the Israelite army as long as it took to complete the conquest. And that will be seven years. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that the full seven years that they never had a furlough during that time. Although being on furlough in those days would have been a little more difficult because you couldn't just hop a military transport and go someplace. You, know, you had to walk all the way home, which would have been uh, a bit of some doing. But nevertheless, they were to remain, and that meant until Joshua felt it was time that they could be released. So it would be up to Joshua ultimately to make the decision. Do we still need you or may you go home now? Well, now Joshua is waiting for their response. What will these people say? Moses is gone, the one through whom they had promised. And now Joshua is in command. Will they fulfill their promise? Well, God bless Joshua. Remember, God had said to Joshua, no one will stand against you all the days of your life. And that meant his own people, too. And so the men of Reuben and Gad and half-tribe of Manasseh, their hearts were prepared by God to submit to Joshua's authority as they would have submitted to that of Moses. And what's interesting is, and we read this in the passage a little bit ago, that they prayed in it. They, they not only said, yes, we'll do it, but they prayed that the Lord would be with Joshua as he had been with Moses. You have to almost be there to sense what that would mean to Joshua. To have these people who could be doubtful in their loyalty actually pray. Oh, God, be with this man, Joshua, as you had been with Moses. That <laughs> would have been a thrilling moment for Joshua. And then they further exhorted Joshua to be strong and courageous. Now, Joshua hears the word strong and courageous so often in this first chapter. I, I think he probably got the point after a while. You are to be strong and courageous, Joshua. And then they went even to the extreme of saying, if there is even one who refuses to obey your command and do as you have led them to do, we will execute them. Whoa. You know, these people are serious. And of course, 
this would give a reason to think twice about any, you know, on the part of any Reubenite, Gadite, or half-tribe of Manassite <laughs> to say, no, we're going to stay home. We're not going to fulfill that. Uh, no, you won't stay home. You will come because to stay home could terminate your existence. Well, let's move on to the second chapter of Joshua because this is an amazing story. Let's read the first seven verses. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly and you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. This passage tells us that the center of the Israelite camp on the plains of Moab was at Shittim. The word Shittim means acacia trees, Shittah. Apparently, the heart of the camp was located around a grove of acacia trees. Now, acacia trees are very common in the Near East, even to this day. There are several species of acacia tree that live over there. And the kind referred to here are trees that were uh, very important to the people who lived in desert areas because they were desert trees. They were trees that survived in the desert. They often lived in the gullies wherever there was some water that would collect uh, during rains. Um, they were trees that grew to an average of about 20 feet in height, and, and they kind of brush, bushed over, so they gave shade. Um, they were hardwoods, very hardwood. In fact, you remember, as we read back in the, um, the story of building of the tabernacle, that that was the wood that was used. Acacia wood was used for much of the construction of the tabernacle. It was kind of an orange-brown color wood. It's interesting because we have acacia trees here in California, too. And uh, if you've seen them, they, they have little tiny leaves that almost look, you stand way back, it almost looks like feathers, little tiny leaves on two sides of a branch. And they have yellow flowers uh, when it's the seasonal time for this to happen. And so this grove was, of course, a very pleasant place to be in, in the relatively hot climate of that area. So it was apparently at the heart of the camp, and so it was referred to as the place of Shatim, of the acacia trees of the grove. The city of Jericho was only 15 miles away. Now remember, no automobiles, no smog, so quite visible across there, 15 miles, not too far to see. Being up on the plateau of Moab, was they were a little bit higher than the Jordan River, so they could look down over the gorge of the Jordan River and then back up on the other side. They could see Jericho over there, uh, slightly to the northwest of where they were, 15 miles away. And so here the Israelites are, camped on this plain, looking across at that city. And they were a bit restless because the order had gone out that they were to move out. And they knew that crossing this river was committing them to the conquest. 
Crossing the river probably was a question in many people's minds because it was the time of the year when the Jordan was in flood, we're told. In those days, there was water in the Jordan. There's some water in the Jordan today, too, but so much is taken out to, to irrigate Israel and, uh, and Jordan, the country of Jordan today, that the river is way below what it used to be, and that's why the Dead Sea is constantly falling and shrinking. But in those days, the Jordan River could be uh, quite, a, quite a torrent to cross in the flood stage. But the people were not as concerned about that as they were that stronghold over there on the other side. And it would be the very first stronghold faced by the invaders. Jericho would be a very, very important city for the Israelites to capture. I mean, it is the test case. And I have given to you on the outline some of the reasons uh, why this was such an important city to capture. First of all, it was the most powerful city in the southern part of the Jordan Valley. They would face other cities later on that were more powerful, but it was the most powerful city they would face early on in their assault. And it controlled the east-west route of communication from the Jordan, the, across the Jordan, into the land of Canaan. Again, let me remind you that in the ancient days, there were two main north-south routes. One was called the Via Maris, which came over from Damascus and cut around the Sea of Galilee and went over to the coast and down the coast. It went through the uh, Jezreel Valley near Megiddo and then went down the coast and went connected over into Egypt. The second north-south route came down the top of the ridge east of the Jordan. It was called the King's Highway. And it connected the major centers along uh, Gilead and Bashan in that area down towards Moab and Edom. And then it hooked around through Kadesh Barnea and over on to Egypt also. In between those two was a secondary route that moved down the Jordan Valley on the, uh, on the west side. So here you have these north-south routes. And every once in a while there was an east-west connector. And the east-west connector here went through Jericho from Jerusalem area down to Jericho and then across the Jordan. You'll notice in the passage it says, the fords of the Jordan. So there was a regular place where people crossed the Jordan River there, not too far from Jericho. So to, connect, to capture that connecting uh, road would be important for them. Secondly, it would provide a wonderful base of operations for the continued assault into the highlands to the west. It would be a beachhead. It would be what it was for the men at D-Day who finally moved inland from Omaha and, and uh, Utah and Gold and Sword and Juneau and moved from those beaches inland and finally established a beachhead. Something from which they could operate inside the land on the west side of the Jordan. Thirdly, its capture would further deepen the fears that the Canaanites had of Israel and of Israel's God. Let me uh, go back to the 23rd chapter of Exodus. 23rd chapter of Exodus, verse 27. God is talking about sending his angel before and leading Israel into the land uh, one day. In verse 27, he says, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw, them into, and throw into confusion all the peoples among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you which means when you face their armies, they will run. And as I mentioned to you before, I think I mentioned to you, I've mentioned it somewhere, that one of the more interesting articles recently about ancient warfare tells us that most of the skeletons that they've uncovered of ancient warriors were, had been wounded in the back, indicating that they were killed while running from the enemy. 
And so what, what this indicates is that you are victorious. The enemy is going to be destroyed. And why is that? Because the terror of the Lord is upon them. And we discover this when we read, of course, further into this count, account of Rahab. And she tells the spies, the people here, their hearts are melting within them because of you. The terror of the Lord was there. It's also referred to as the hornets that God sent before. The fear of the Lord that was sent into the land to drive the people out. And then fourthly, the capture of Jericho would confirm to Israel that God would deliver the land into their hands. It would confirm to Israel. Because when they capture the city, they can say, yes, God is with us. He's not only with us, He knocked the walls down, miraculously delivering the land to us. Can you imagine how that would bolster their, their belief that they would be victorious? And then lastly, and I do have this uh, on the uh, outline there, if you've never been to Jericho, you, you can't really imagine this, but Jericho is a wonderful place. Uh, Jericho is a, is, is, is a garden city. I mean, everything blooms there. In the summertime, it's a bit on the warm side, I have to admit. But in the wintertime, it's absolutely delightful. You know, snow could be falling, it's 26 degrees in Jerusalem, you go down to Jericho and it's 72 degrees. The sun is shining, the flowers are blooming, the birds are chirping, the plants have fruit on them. Jericho would begin to provision the army in the land, would give them wonderful fields and, uh, and uh, orchards from which to harvest. It's located 900 feet below sea level. And, and that low, temperature rises. Yeah. Temperature declines. I, I've forgotten the, all the statistics. I knew all this years ago when I took courses in climates and weather and everything. But, you know, every 100 feet you go up, temperature drops so much. Well, you know, the reverse is true. Every 100 feet you go down, the temperature climbs uh, X number of degrees. And, and so it would be for Jericho down there at 900 feet below sea level, which would be 3,500 feet lower than Jerusalem. When we were there, the sweetest oranges yeah. I've ever in my life. Not a bit of tang in them whatsoever. Total sugar, in a good sense. Yeah. The citrus fruit is wonderful there. That's the first place we ever ate pomelos. Those big, big yellow things that look like a grapefruit four times the size it's supposed to be. You know, and it has big, thick peeling. You pull it off and you end up with a fruit about the size of a grapefruit, but it's sweeter, sweeter than a grapefruit. They're really nice. But the growing season is all year round there. And although it's in a dry area, there are perennial springs, perennial springs that constantly flow there. And so it became known as Jericho, which according to some means the fragrant place, where you smell the orange blossoms and the other things. There are a few uh, people who apparently don't like that romantic view, and they say, no, it, the name comes from Yara, the moon god. Well, whatever. We'll, we'll just call it the fragrant place because it was a delightful place and it had to be a fragrant place for Israel once they had captured it and uh, contained that particular area. Well, the two spies. Two spies are sent by Joshua. And you might say, Joshua, when Moses sent 12 spies, didn't work out too good. Maybe you don't want any spies. Just go do it. No. Joshua sends two spies and they have to cross the Jordan River. How do they do that? In a ski nautique? I don't think so. Um, they may have 
Swim, swam, swam. <laughs> they, they may have crossed the river that way, or probably they got on a log and floated across. You know, somehow they got across the river. Because it was at flood stage, so the fords were probably rather unfordable at uh, that particular time, other than floating across or somehow swimming across. And, you know, it's amazing here how God does this. God doesn't waste a lot of words, let me clue you. Here's Joshua says, go view the land, especially Jericho. And then you have one sentence telling the whole story of, yes, sir. And the two guys go and they end up in Jericho and they end up in the house of Rahab. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and they lodged there. And that's the whole story of how they got there. It doesn't tell uh, how they got across the river and how they snuck over to the city and how they, you know, got in through the city past the uh, people sitting at the gates there, they thought, unnoticed, of course, and uh, ended up at the house of Rahab. They were, of course, going as incognito as possible, but somehow they were recognized. They were recognized and somebody followed them and noted that they went into Rahab's house. How come? Well, you could imagine the city of Jericho had been on full alert for quite a while, ever since they saw Israel come down to camp on the other side. And they looked at that mob of people over there. And they knew what had happened, that they had just conquered the whole of Gilead. And they had wiped out kingdoms far more powerful than the sing single little kingdom of Jericho. And even though they had powerful walls around their city, they were still biting their nails, wondering what was going to happen next. And of course, they were afraid. And so the whole city had been on red alert. And anybody who looked a little different, uh, they noted, you know, can you imagine how many people were drugged before the KGB, FBI, or whatever they had in that day, and interrogated, who were just merchants passing through, you know. And then these two guys come, and they were followed. And of course, they were going to be apprehended and drug in before the king where they would be interrogated, and the people were very nervous. Israel was encamped only 15 miles away. Well, the big question is, why did these guys go into the house of a harlot? Oh, I think I'll leave it right there. <laughs> and uh, I think it's a good place to pick it up next week.